This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number 12, recorded August 11th, 2016. I've been looking forward to today for some time. Today's guest is Bill Swallow, an Albany-based technical communicator who is the who has the fancy title of Director of Oper- Operations at Scriptorium. Scriptorium happens to be owned by Sarah O'Keefe, who appeared on episode number eight of this podcast, so you can go check that one out as well. You can follow Bill on Twitter, at Bill Swallow, though I do miss Techcom Dude. I first met Bill on Twitter several years ago, and uh, since we both have a love of beer, homebrewing, and technical communications, we really hit it off online. Uh, we finally got to meet each other in person at uh, LavaCon 2013, and, you know, meeting up finally, even though we're not that far away from each other, it felt like we've been friends for forever. So uh, there may have also been beer involved. How you doing today, Bill? Good, Ed. How are you doing? Good, man. What's going on? Ah, just enjoying this lovely, balmy weather we're having. <sighs> you know, I haven't talked about the weather in some time, but it is it's brutal out here. It's 94 hitting... New Jersey, and uh, it's just oppressive heat. I like it hot, but this is a little this is a little ridiculous. It is. If the air was a little thicker, I think I'd be able to cut it with a knife. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, thankful I'm staying inside today. So, um, Bill, why don't you start off? Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your expansive career in TechCom and uh, how you've gotten where you are now? Sure. Uh, let's see. All started long ago. Um, hmm. uh, Back in college, actually, um, I had originally attended uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute for nice. architecture, and oh. things went incredibly well my first uh, year there. My second year, uh, <laughs> I think uh, architecture decided it didn't like me very much, um, oh. so I decided to look at alternatives and fell back on uh, something that my uh, AP English teacher said to me um, when he found out that I was going to be studying architecture in college, uh, that is my teacher from high school. And okay. he basically said, you're making a mistake, you should focus on writing. <laughs> and nice. I said, yeah, but I really want to be an architect. Um, sure enough, he was right. So um, <laughs> RPI, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, has a rather um, extensive uh, technical communications program there. Uh, it focuses mostly on the science of technical communication, um, although we do cover, uh, or they do cover a lot of rhetoric and uh, you know, other non-sciencey areas of, um, of techcom, let's say. Uh, so they, they cover the theory, they cover the mechanics, they cover soup to nuts, uh, you name it. So I... Uh, I finished up my bachelor's with a bachelor of science in communication, and uh, after that went to work for a translation company in the area. Mm. I worked there for about a year and got my hands dirty with a lot of different uh, software applications. I learned a lot about the translation process and uh, the do's and do nots uh, of writing Mm. good content for translation. Uh, after that, uh, I left for a consulting company down in Connecticut for a few years, and uh, we missed living. By, at that point, my first daughter was born, and we all missed uh, living in upstate New York, so we moved back up. And um, unfortunately, around that time, there were a lot of dot-coms rising up in the area, and that was mm. the most... Uh, that was the, e- the easiest uh, place to find a job. 
So I unfortunately bounced around from .com to .com for a few years, um, (laughs) doing all sorts of of different technical communications-based roles, Uh, did some independent consulting in between, and uh, landed at MapInfo Corporation, which is now uh, owned by Pippi Bowes. And I was there for about six and a half years, uh, worked my way from uh, being a technical writer up through management and global leadership uh, up for technical communications there. And really got my hands dirty with the tech comm side of localization, uh, since we uh, localized in many, many different languages. Hmm. And um, yeah, and so, you know, I think uh, after six and a half years, I left and went, uh, I'm thinking where I went after that, but it was another dot com or a um, pre IPO company that did not get its funding at the time, but ultimately hmm. landed back at LinguaLinks. Uh, for a while doing more translation work and ultimately at Scriptorium. Um, And yeah, it's been a, it's been a bumpy, rocky road and I'm not really ashamed to admit that because it's, you know, it was the, the two thousands really were rough for a lot of, uh, a lot of people, uh, mainly because of the dot-com burst. And um, the thing that I look back on is that I really got my uh, experience in with a lot of different uh, applications, a lot of different needs for different types of technical communication, uh, worked with a lot of different groups, some of them large, some of them small, uh, and I was able to get in and really figure out how things ultimately should uh, work within that particular type of environment. So it really kind of prepped me for you know, going back into consulting full time. Well, that's cool. So you fell into uh, translation, but it seems like that served you pretty well in your career. Um, did you? Was that something that you enjoyed right off the bat, or was that something you had to warm up to? Uh, it took a little bit of warm up. I mean, coming right out of college, you never know really what to expect uh, right. with your first job anyway. But um, you know, understanding a bit about language and a bit about uh, the local needs of content uh, was really something I was interested in even back in college. So you know, it was a good fit out of the, out of the gate, so to speak. Tell me more about the local needs of content. I like that line. <laughs> well, you know, as you know, you know, we don't always speak the same language. Um, <laughs> and, you know, even within the same country, you don't really speak the same language. You look across the United States <laughs> and, you know, one person could be ordering a sandwich, another could order a hoagie, a grinder, a sub, you name it. And then you get into what you're going to drink with that. Is it going to be pop? Is it going to be you know, soda? Is it going to be tonic? Is it going to be... Uh, Coke, even if you buy a Pepsi, it could be a Coke. Um, so, you know, there's there's a wide variety of, uh, or a wide difference in how people uh, approach and use language. And there are a lot of local uh, drivers for that. And a lot of, um, a lot of local um, differences, let's say, uh, in the way that people choose what word to use to mean whatever it is they're talking about. So, you know, being able to uh, identify those targets uh, when you're developing content or at least understand, um, you know, what the ultimate needs are. A lot of times people treat translation as kind of an afterthought and just, you know, let's just get the, you know, usually the English version done and Hmm. we'll put it through all its paces. We'll we'll give it a, a, a thorough technical review. We'll give it a thorough... Uh, editorial review, we'll, we'll bless it and uh, we'll praise it and then we'll toss it over <laughs> the wall to a translator and demand that they give it back to us in 
three weeks and throw it out over the wall to our clients. Um, <laughs> I don't particularly like that approach at all. Um, <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> you know, it's, it requires, you know, content requires proper care and feeding. Um, and you have to know what it's being used for in order to write it right the first time. And a lot of times you have to write multiple different versions of the same content to suit different needs. And it doesn't right. necessarily mean managing a whole bunch of different content sets, but you have to be mindful of where the differences need to lie. For example? Uh, for example, <laughs> um, and this, this is really leans more on the marketing side of things than on the techcom side. Techcom kind of treats things as, as they are. So you're never going to describe something one way and then describe it a completely different way if it's, um, if it's something that, you know, if it's task based information, if it's something that someone has to do, they have to follow a process. You can't change that process. Uh, but with Marcom, it's a little different. You're trying to, mm, um, you're trying to evoke a, a response out of people. You're trying to trigger that, um, that emotional, you know, let's say desire to have your product, uh, or to buy into your services or, or whatnot. And how you go about doing that is going to vary based on, you know, where your audience is located, what they value, uh, what's taboo in their society, what's not taboo how they refer to things. So if you're trying to talk to somebody down to earth um, and straightforward uh, to them, you want to use a language that they're comfortable and familiar with. So you're going to change up uh, the messaging that's in your marketing communications. Uh, you're not going to send the same message out, you know, for uh, let's say Florida to, you know, Nova Scotia and then send the <laughs> same message over to Moscow or to Beijing. Um, it's going to be a tailored message because they're all going to have uh, different requirements, different expectations, and uh, really approach messaging in a very different way. I have to say, I never thought about marketing in terms of translation. I always thought those were a local kind of thing, but you're saying people are using centralized content for marketing content across different locations? To a degree, yes. Um, you know, there are, huh. there are certain... there. I had a whole presentation on this a couple of years back. I should probably share it in the slide share. But, um, you know, there's, it, it depends on the type of content. Uh, if hmm. the marketing piece is mainly product driven, then you can probably reuse about 90% of that and just change, change your pitch up, so to speak, um, hmm. from release to release. But as you get to more, a more tailored message, then you have to start thinking about how you're going to address it. And at that point, you shift from, you know, if you're, if you're translating this content, you shift from a translation model to what they call a transcreation model. Hmm. And that really means that you have to get your message written down in a way that someone local will understand it and be able to translate it appropriately for that audience. So you're giving the translator, let's say, all the information that they need to create that custom tailored message. Hmm. That's cool. So where does your role now fit into all this? What are you doing with, um, you know, with Scriptorium in terms of translation? Well, we work, I work with a lot of different um, clients on a wide variety of translation needs. Um, some have just a language translation requirement for, you know, pretty technical content and others have, um, content that's going out in many, many different formats. Um, 
what I do is I try to advise them on how best to really handle those scenarios. Um, you know, one is to be able to set up the content uh, in source formats so that um, you know it's easy for the translation, um, you know, the, the, the translation memory to pick it up and use it. And you know, we advise you know clients on really simple things that a lot of people forget, which is. Um, you know, even formatting can matter in a tra in translation memory. If you're looking to save money from version to version, you know, if you bold a word and then unbold it, or you know, decide to apply highlighting, you know, it can disrupt the TM uh, to a degree. It may not be, you know, a total disruption, but you're you're going to lose hmm. what they call that ice match. You know, that in context exact match, um, and you'll get maybe a hundred percent match or a ninety nine percent match. Um, and also, you know, little things like, oh, we forgot a comma here, and you know, we forgot to put a period at the end of this, or you know, we used the wrong um, currency symbol, uh, or something like that. Any little change you make to the content, um, you know, really impacts your leverage of the translation. So, you know, we try to impress these things upon our clients and make sure that they understand that, you know, once it's written and it's approved, if it isn't a major change, don't touch it because it's going to cost you money. Um, you know, <laughs> right. All that be said, you know, the, the cost savings on the translation side, um, I mean, it's nothing to, to dismiss by any means, but, you know, the cost savings of, you know, pennies per word uh, pales in comparison to what we really help them with is streamline their, their content delivery um okay. so that they can increase that time to market or they can decrease their time to market and and get it out you know get the localized products out faster and what we usually see is that a company will develop something and release the english while the other languages are still being translated right and then as the translations come back you might get a six-week lag a three-month lag a six-month lag depending on you know how big the content set is and exactly how you know, solid the processes for getting it translated and, and incorporated. Um, you know, it's not just translation, but then you have to go through your entire publishing cycle again. And the hmm. new language can always, you know, if you don't plan ahead for it, the new language can add odd layout issues. It can add font issues, especially if you're rendering online. Um, all sorts of fun stuff like that. So, you know, we try to try to help our clients streamline that process and bring their time to market in so that they can realize actual revenue maybe even a quarter earlier or a week earlier or a month earlier. Okay. But, you know, what we've heard time and time again is that, um, you know, it's not, you know, the cost, you know, the cost savings are great. And, you know, you have to do your due diligence, due diligence to keep your operating costs down. Uh, and, you know, saving on translation is certainly part of that process. But, you know, the real value is being able to actually, you know, have a completed sale or a completed sales transaction done uh, a quarter early and be able to show those earnings earlier. Wow. It's, uh, thankfully, I haven't had to deal with um, translation in a really long time, actually, back since the days is that people still used to print manuals. But um, interesting, I'm learning words like ice match I had never actually heard before. So it's interesting. You're not actually doing any of the translation, though, are you, Bill? No, you would not trust me <laughs> translating in any other language at all. Even English to English might be a little difficult for me at times. <laughs> I hear you. So um, what can we as technical communicators do uh, 
to make our to make our translators' lives easier? Oh, that's a that's a big question. Um, it seems so innocent. We've got time. <laughs> you know, the real thing is to be mindful of what you're doing and to make sure that um, if you have a style guide that you're following it to the letter. Uh, if you have templates that you're using them appropriately, that you're avoiding any kind of overrides. Um, we see this a lot in especially Microsoft Word, um, where as long as it looks okay uh, when it's printed <laughs> or, or turned into a PDF, that's all that matters. But really, I mean, everything under the hood um, impacts the translation process. Um, so if you have... Um, you know, multiple tags and you keep switching which tag you're formatting things with, that's going to impact your translation cost and, and it's going to, to murky, you know, muddy the waters. Uh, long strung out sentences, lots of prepositional phrases, lots of clauses, um, that usually is problematic when you go for translation. Um, some languages just don't accommodate that, so they're going to have to rewrite what you wrote in order mm. to make it work. Um, hmm. and that takes time and that takes money, uh, to do, um, you know, there, there is, there are just so many things. Um, images are a big one. You know, if you're, if, if you're oh, putting images out there, uh, you know, even screenshots, if your screenshot is in English and you're translating to 19 different languages, who gets the fun job of recapturing all those images in 19 different languages once the UI is translated, you know, right. um, so we try to advise people not to use full screen captures with large data sets unless they absolutely have to. You know, yeah, if you're okay. capturing a, if you want to show someone a button, take a capture of the button this way. You know, if the button changes, then you change it once and then you change it throughout your translations once. But if the button never changes, you don't have to touch it again. Um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that um, really makes, you know, makes the translation process go a lot smoother. The, you know, images are real, real big issue. Um, you know, there's also text in images that's a, a concern. Oh, you know, yeah. we try to, you know, advise people that if they're going to include text inside an image, uh, which we try to avoid at all costs, um, because it is expensive mm. to do, at least have an editable text layer. If you flatten the image to a JPEG, okay. you cannot replace that text. Right. Yeah, I used to do that quite a bit in the 90s and early 2000s with Photoshop, and uh, it was yeah, it was fun for a while, but then it got uh, pretty tedious. Yeah, especially when you're editing the same image over and over, and over again, <laughs> yeah. or if the image is very text-heavy, trying to find a way to fit the translation in when you go from, say, English to German, which has, you know, a German is roughly, on average, about uh, one and a third times as long as English. And some of the words can be very, very long, uh, a single word. So you either have to know where to hyphenate it, know if it's appropriate to hyphenate it, or you have to find another way of fitting it into the image. So, you know, those types of things we try to advise people to just use wow. use a key, um, you know, use a numeric key or something in the image and uh, have a legend down at the bottom that, oh, interesting. You know, that captures all the callouts. That way they can be handled in plain text. Oh, wow. I've been doing it all wrong, man. <laughs> I, I, you know, I hate having to call out to the bottom. It's like giving me the call out on the screen. But I guess I, you know, thankfully, in my current position, I don't have to translate. But just one of those things that, you know, you don't think about. That's it. That's a, that's an interesting point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of it is just basic good tech writing principles. They are. And it really comes down to being mindful of how you're working. 
Um, you know, you don't want to do a sloppy job. Um, you certainly, you know, want to take pride in your work. Uh, and you, I know there's also a timetable to get things out the door, but you, know, yeah. you need to, you know, be mindful of your style guides, be mindful of your templates. Uh, and if you're using any kind of XML, you have to make sure that you're, you know, you're using it and, and implementing it appropriately. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, is having a structured authoring system such as Dita or DocBook, is that helpful for the most part for translation? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it's our cla <laughs> the classic consulting answer, which is it depends. Um, right. You have to be mindful of uh, a lot of different different things, not necessarily you know the same issues. Certainly, you have your you know your formatting or your inline tag issues, where if you move uh, any kind of um, uh, line level element around, uh, you're going to have issues uh, with the translation. So you know if you extend uh, an area that's uh, marked as a UI control, for example, um, you know if you you add an ellipsis or something to your menu item and your UI control tag, um, that'll impact translation. But there are also other things. Um, hmm. You know, sometimes sometimes translators don't understand when they should and when they shouldn't translate something. But and, and oh, okay. XML gives you the ability to actually flag the content to say, don't translate this. You know, don't translate oh, okay. this paragraph. Don't translate this element. You know, don't translate this button label. Um, you can add that right into the metadata of the of the actual elements, uh, and that provides hmm. some instruction. Of course, you have to also then work with a translator who's used to translating XML, okay. and they have to train their um, their translation management system to look for it and and filter uh, those elements as appropriate. Um, you know, out of the gate. A lot of translation management uh, systems will certainly take in XML, but they won't necessarily know exactly what to do with it. So they'll give you hmm. everything. And if you're trying to obscure the metadata, if you're trying to obscure uh, things that shouldn't be translated and other, you know, such elements, you need to train the translate uh, the translation management system to ignore those things. Hmm. hmm. So cool. So when uh, you know, at what point did you pick up the structured authoring? Uh, you know, this, when did you pick up structured authoring along your career? Is it something you learned organically or just okay? Yeah, you know, yeah. how did you learn? It? Uh, let's see. Well, I tinkered with it a lot um, back in the mid 2000s. Uh, we were looking to migrate from FrameMaker to some form of uh, XML. And mm. um, sounds familiar. Yeah. And I've been, uh, yeah, at the time I was also heavily involved in uh, doing a lot of code side documentation. Uh, so we were writing in oh. uh, writing documentation in the code in C sharp, uh, which isn't oh, isn't necessarily XML, but um, you know we still have to be mindful about a lot of things when we're doing that. Um, so you know I've always been interested in uh, newer technologies. So um, okay. you know when I was consulting, you know working for a consulting shop way back in the '90s, early '90s, uh, mid '90s, I would say. Um, we were just starting to look at HTML help, uh, and we were just starting to look at this new thing called XML back then. Uh, hmm. But really, there was no way to leverage it. It was just used for raw data at the time. It wasn't really being used much for content outside of okay. well, outside of IBM, let's say. Um, right. But um, you know, around the two thousand, you know, mid two thousands, I started really poking at data, poking at DocBook, trying to evaluate both, um, and. Uh, 
then I really started getting my hands dirty, I would say roughly about five years ago, uh, where we really started offering content in, um, in XML. Okay, cool. So do you miss writing content or you still write content? Oh, I still write content. I write all sorts of content. Um, <laughs> you know, part of, well, part of what we do is, uh, you know, as we're helping uh, our clients out, you know, we, we're generating reports for them. And actually, we write a lot of okay. we write yeah. all of our reports in XML, um, which makes uh, the you know the, the process a lot easier for us to do uh, publishing and so forth. Um, but uh, yeah, I write a lot of content. From time to time, a client will require uh, some assistance with a pilot project, and they may call upon us to um, you know to rewrite a, a portion of their content so they can show. Uh, either their writers or their uh, management exactly how this new content strategy thing that they're trying to evaluate is going to work. Hmm. Um, so we'll we'll go ahead and we'll write, rewrite some of their content. Um, probably, you know, usually fix some of the um, uh, the more writing based uh, issues uh, that we see with the content in order to make it fit the particular model that they're 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 looking to move toward. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of writing and a lot of rewriting. Uh, and then, of course, the publishing and, and such. So talking about content strategy, how much difficulty does translation add to your job as a content strategist? Personally, well, well, for me, I mean, I, I'm fortunate to have worked for two different um, localization service providers. So I'm, you know, fairly... <laughs> You know, I, I have some bumps and bruises to show for that experience uh, <laughs> where we've had to help uh, clients you know, either fix their content last minute or otherwise just make something work on the translation side. So I'm, I'm very oh, interesting. I'm very tuned into um, the issues that translation companies run into with various content. So, you know, that helps with the overall strategy deployment um, because we can be mindful of those things up front as, you know, whether or not clients have to translate, uh, we try to run best practices by them, um, and, okay. and to kind of explain these things because it, even if they're not translating now, who's to say they're not going to be, you know, not going to have a translation need five years down the road. And we don't want to, uh, help them build a, a brand new content architecture and have it not account for translation. Hmm. So are you seeing, um, I guess you're seeing a lot of demand for translation and content strategy in uh, translation. Oh yes, um, you know we we actually I've I've actually talked to you know quite a few uh, translators who are getting more into the content side of things, the source content side of things. Um, you know, the, if you ever want to know if you translate content and you ever want to know what's wrong with your content, you should ask your translators because they will be able to tell you, <laughs> you know, what you should be fixing. Um, you know, that, that should be your first go to. Uh, if you're not sure what you should be fixing, talk to your translators. They, they will probably give you an earful. Hmm. Interesting. So where do we find good translators or how do we if I, you know, if my company is looking for translation all of a sudden, how do we know what to look for? Um, that's a good question, and there's no other than hiring scriptorium. <laughs> well, we we won't do the translation, and we certainly don't. Right. Um, you know, we we don't have um, you know any you know s single go to company that we recommend, okay. um, and it varies because you have a few things at play. One is um, 
you know, whether or not they can handle the source content uh, format, uh, whether or not they're going to fit within your budget, you know, their, their costs, um, their location, uh, you have to take into account uh, the subject matter and make sure that they understand uh, what it is that you're writing about. Uh, so if you're writing about medical stuff, you certainly don't want to throw it open to someone who's only versed in insurance uh, and vice versa. Uh, so you want to make sure that they have translators on, on board who understand um, your subject matter and your, your, your market. So they not understand not only how to translate it and not only mm. you know what word to use, but also how to make sure that it's appropriate for that particular audience, wherever it's going. Well, that's cool stuff. So you um, you mentioned that a, an English high school teacher mentioned that you should uh, consider a career in writing, and I had a, a, a um, college professor do that for me too as well. Uh, did you you know at what point did you realize that this was the thing that you wanted to do and that you wanted to make a career as, in in technical communication? Um, it was definitely while I was still in college. Um, oh, interesting. Know, I kind of I kind of hit my stride there uh, once I changed majors and started getting my uh, uh, my, you know, my hands dirty in a lot of different aspects of technical communication. Um, it kind of all clicked with me, and you know, I had the the fortune of learning, you know, not only about writing. So, you know, yes, we studied rhetoric and we studied, um, you know, technical communications practices um, and taxonomy and all that fun stuff. But you know, we also got to you know go to design classes where you know. One oh, of nice. the only Mac labs at the time on campus was my romping ground for a semester, and that was fantastic. Um, you know, I got to dabble with um, electronic music and electronic art and all these other forms of communication that you don't necessarily associate with being uh, tech tom, but hmm. but they all kind of you know play a role. I mean, today you, know, you look anywhere online, you probably have you know video at play. Um, you certainly have audio, you have animations, you have all this fun stuff, uh, and it all serves a purpose, whether it's marketing, whether it's tech com, or, or even just for pure entertainment purposes. Um, it's important to know, you know how to create these things. Right. So how did how did music fall into your tech com um, education? It didn't, but it was an awful lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually got to use a, uh, a particular tool that was developed uh, for the school that was basically a, um, a uh, an AI for music, if you will. And hmm. we could program in the type of things we wanted it to play with and then let it run. And occasionally, you know, and then we could train it along the way. So, you know, we kind of had, um, you know, this application run and we would have, you know, a, um, a mitt or whatever that we could, you know, so to speak, just put it in front of its face to redirect it, you know, every time it started to go off course from where you wanted it to go. Uh, but it was essentially hmm. composed the music for you. And, you know, we did a lot with, um, a lot with MIDI based recordings, uh, which, oh, which cool. was a lot of fun at the time. But this is going back so many years ago. Now everyone has these oh, applications nice. on their, you know, laptops when they buy it. Yeah, they're on their phone. <laughs> oh yeah, even on their phone. Yeah, um, yeah. If you want to talk about going back, you know, I was when I was in college, I went to school for journalism, and uh, the electronic publishing tool that I learned back then was uh, Ventura Publisher. Oh, excellent. so that's uh, yeah, we, yeah. We played with WordStar. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, WordStar, Zyrite was my first job. Oh, God. I think I learned a little bit of Quark Express and 
at the college newspaper, but uh, you know, it's it's been a long time since anyone's really used Ventura. I think I still have the floppy disks somewhere though. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure I've got some SideQuest disks laying around somewhere. Oh god, I think everybody <laughs> has those. Or a zip drive or something. Exactly. So, um, when did your career, I mean, do you consider content strategy a part of your career uh, from the beginning, or is that something else that you kind of acquired as you went along? Um, well, it was definitely something I acquired as I went along. I wasn't exactly sure where I'd fall, but I knew I was happy in TechCom. Uh, and okay. over, the, over time, you know, I really got into the problem-solving aspect of it. Uh, really got into the leadership aspect, um, you know, being able to show others, um, you know, a better way of, of doing things, or being able to recognize that someone else has a better way of doing things and helping them to teach others. Um, that type of thing has always uh, been a part of my career, and, and it's been something that I've really enjoyed doing. And mm. you know, I had the, the the wonderful opportunity to become um, you know, what we call the practices leader. Uh, at uh, MapInfo and be able to work with a global team and bring that team together to work as a whole. Um, that was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, yeah, that was that was exactly what I loved doing, which was uh, you know, doing that, that high-level problem solving and recognizing um, you know, the potential in others and being able to let them run with uh, what really drives them as well. So you like the management side of things? Management side, the um, and, and yeah, the problem solving side, and it, it goes it mm. goes hand in hand when you start looking at content strategy because you can't throw a technical solution at uh, at a problem and expect it to work without having a human layer involved as well. Hmm, well, that's a good point. Huh? Yeah, I, I didn't think about that. I mean, well, I guess you do think about it innately, but you know, you're always solving the problem with tools. You're not thinking about the people using the tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, hmm. there's. I mean, when you approach any kind of any kind of strategic initiative, you know, the, the biggest thing, the biggest hurdle that you have to overcome is not technological, but it's change management. Um, right. That's the big one, and uh, that takes a lot of interpersonal work to uh, to do right. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, So I guess one of my questions was going to be, you're a tools guy, but it sounds like you're a tools and a person guy or a management guy. I guess you could say that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of built a reputation early on in my career as the tools guy. Um, <laughs> you know, I was even hired on because I was the tools guy <laughs> at one right, place. Nice. But, um, but yeah, I, I, like, you know, I, I like looking at the strategic side of things, the business angles and uh, the personnel angles as well. So are you, um, you know, I know that you work out of your house and then scriptoriums down in North Carolina. What kind of travel schedule do you have? I know you're at conferences <laughs> and, and you're, you know, every time I turn around, Bill's someplace else. Yeah. Um, well, you know, working with uh, clients across the country um, really requires you to visit them. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm flying out a lot to, uh, you know, to visit various clients. Um, and then, yes, you have the conferences. And the one thing that... Um, Sarah and Alan and I sit down and, and bang our heads against the wall about is when is Bill going to come to the office next time? Uh, because oh, it geez. seems like there's always another trip, always another. Uh, oh, wow. Something. But I, we try to carve out times so that I at least make 
you know, we were aiming for four, we were happy with three, but, you know, we're really now shooting for two times a year to go down to, um, wow. go down to North Carolina, um, hoping for three times, but yeah, I love going down there. Uh, it's a great group of people and I'm glad that we can all still connect well remotely. Um, yeah, so I, it doesn't feel so alone as I'm here in my, my basement, uh, office, oh, um, which is beautiful today, by the way, because I'm escaping the heat. Oh, it's heat, yeah. But, um, yeah, um, you know, I travel a lot. Uh, you know, you'll usually see me out at, uh, you know, three or four conferences a year and, uh, at least, okay. you know, at least myself. Um, and then, um, yeah, a lot of the client travel on top of that. Well, you always seem cheerful at the conferences. Is that a, uh, is that an act or are you, uh, generally happy when you're there? I'm generally a happy guy, I think. Oh, <laughs> nice. Either that or I'm uh, tricking myself quite nicely. <laughs> nice. So from what I understand, the uh, scriptorium folks are, are quite the foodies. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We we all love to eat and, and I have the body to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. Um, we we like to get together when we're down there and, and uh, have an exodus somewhere uh, to a, a, a new restaurant. Uh, to a lot of us, so we can just try out the new flavor. Uh, oh, nice flavor of the week, flavor of the month. Or, you know, we're all foodies, uh, and when we travel for conferences, we try to pick up things uh, locally that we can't get back home. Uh, so for oh, a cool. while, when we were going out to Portland, we would buy, um, you know, lots of voodoo donuts, and we'd bring them to hmm. bring them to the booth and just share them with everybody because you know, I mean, as much as we'd love to eat them all, uh, you wouldn't want to interact with us <laughs> after we've eaten them all. <laughs> So yeah, I just saw Gretel uh, at Scriptorium at the uh, Tech T sorry TC Camp Conference in Virginia. Did she bring back anything good? Do you know? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't get the spoils that come into the office oh, right. too often. Every once in a while, I will. But um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, they'll send some. Well, sometimes they'll send something up, and sometimes I'll send something down um, or bring it with me hmm. when, I, when I visit. So what's what's good to eat in your area? You're are you in Albany itself, or are you in the area? Uh, I'm in the area. I'm just north of Albany, um, so just uh, across the Mohawk River from from Albany. And um, okay, yeah. What's good around here? I would say we definitely have uh, a thing for hot wings up here. You know, we do we do them well. Uh, oh, you know that that is uh, probably very very high on the list. Oh, interesting. So, so, all right, it's, it, it's time. It's the inevitable time. Uh, what's, what breweries are up by you? What do you like to drink this time of year? <laughs> I knew the beer question was coming. Uh, come on, Bill. It had to come out sooner or later. <laughs> oh, let's see. We have a lot of really good local breweries around here. Um, I think if there's anything that you'd be able to get your hands on, I don't think so. A lot of, a lot of the companies around here are small. Um, you know, so right. they have their own tap rooms. They might have uh, local, uh, you know, bar distribution, restaurant distribution, but they don't really bottle or can very often. Okay. Um, we have, um, let's see, I think ones that you, you'd probably be able to um, identify with. We, we do have um, uh, Saratoga Brewery, which is starting to spread out a little bit more. Um, but we have a lot of mom and pops. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, in the area is Rare Form. Uh, they're located in 
downtown Troy, and uh, they do a lot of really interesting uh, takes on normal styles. So they'll they'll take a a classic mm. style and, and add a nice twist to it, one way or another. Give me an example of something good there. Uh, they have, and it sounds strange, but they they have a toasted coconut ale that is oh. actually quite good. It's it's not sweet. It's it's very dry, um, and it's actually quite refreshing. Nice. I just had there. Um, the laws changed recently in New Jersey the past couple of years, and there's been an explosion of small breweries. Just like assuming that there's up by you. Uh, and there's a place I was just at called Elementary, uh, not far from me, that opened up in April, I think. So they're really, really new. But they just I was just there on Sunday. They had a smoked peach kolsch that was outrageous. Smoked peach kolsch. It's an yes. interesting combination. Yeah, it was one that I don't think I could have more than one pint of. But, you know, you smelled the fruit, then you got the smoke, and then it rounded out with the peach at the end. It was, uh, it was a nice, nice summer beer. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's thankfully, the, you know, I was just talking with a friend of mine that would, there's, there's been an explosion of breweries in this area. And I have, you know, within half an hour now, I've got four breweries that I can go to, uh, two who make absolutely fantastic beer, one who makes pretty good beer and one who makes okay beer. So, um, you know, it, uh, it, it's been nice to enjoy the spoils of, of local breweries around here. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've we've had a big uh, increase as well, and also a big increase in the number of um, dedicated beer bars in the area now. Um, oh, nice! So they, yeah. they get a lot of interesting things, and because we're so close to Vermont, we start getting all of the um, you know the, um, the well sought after beers now from like nice. uh, Hill Farmstead and Treehouse, um, and even areas out into uh, Maine and Massachusetts. We're getting a lot of uh, mm. you know a lot of regional. Uh, beer that's, I guess, up and coming or, or being overly hyped, I would say, <laughs> among the beer uh, the beer circuit here. So what would you say is a couple of your favorite styles? A couple of my favorite styles. Uh, well, right now, since it's so hot, I'm, I'm really mm. gravitating toward uh, Dozes and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Berliner Weiss. Nice. Yeah, elementary has a nice... Um, Lime goes that's nice and briny and light, limey as well. So nice. it's a nice summer. Oh yeah, and the the low ABV helps a lot too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you can drink a few of them and just uh, you know enjoy the summer weather. I've been a big I, uh, it's been a big IPA summer for me, but Gosa as well, and uh, you know some sour beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sours are definitely a favorite of mine in the summertime. Yes. What's um. You have a friend named Jeff who opened a brewery near you, right? I do. It's not necessarily near me, though. It's, uh, oh, okay. it's out in the uh, Finger Lakes. It's called uh, Abandoned Brewing. And, uh, Abandoned. Okay. Yeah, they do a lot of farmhouse-style ales, um, uh, a lot of heavy ones. He does a lot of interesting things. Every year he makes a um, a smoked pumpkin ale uh, using oh, nice. freshly smoked pumpkins. Um, and, because uh, the world needs another pumpkin ale. Oh, well, yeah. But um, <laughs> this one's actually really interesting. The smokiness adds quite a bit. Hmm. I can imagine. So, have um, have you been able to tie your love of beer into your tech com career at all? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there's there's no real crossover there. I think. <laughs> That's unfortunate. We got to figure out something. Yeah, out I've about been working that. on it for quite a while, and I can't find the angle. 
<laughs> is that why you retired uh, your tech com dude and beer com dude handles on Twitter? Yeah, well, you know, the Twitter thing just got out of hand. Um, I was realizing that, you know, having too many different accounts was just ridiculous. So I combined them all into one. You know, basically, you know, I am who I am, regardless of what I'm talking about. Right. I don't need a different, uh, you know, a, a different account to talk about a different topic. Yeah, I hear you. I, um, it's interesting though, because I think you know, as I've moved to um, you know single, well, I always had a single account, but as I moved more towards um, the professional side of things, I think I reserve most of my personal stuff for for uh, for Facebook, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do the same. Although I do have a lot of professional contacts on Facebook too, so but, but yeah, at least I, there it's you know it is me, you know. Right. Yeah, it's true. So, and, yeah, I just started opening up to uh, tech writers. I you know I for a long time that. Uh, Tech writing people weren't my friends; they were my competitors. So I kept them off my Facebook, and I didn't want to get into personal. But I've changed that in the past uh, couple of years. So uh, it's, it's nice to see on Facebook, I guess. Nice. I was going <laughs> to say, gee, I feel special. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you wanted one of the one of the, one of the uh, first ones to had uh, who were allowed into my world, like so to speak. I'm so much better for it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> get to see all the wonderful thoughts I have. But at least you get to see some of the beer I'm drinking, too. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? So you're a busy guy. Uh, have you been homebrewing recently? Um, you know, I haven't. Um, yeah. It's been, I'm trying to think of the last time. I think the last thing I made was cider, uh, only because I didn't have to brew. Oh, nice. Um, oh, nice. The last brew I made was, unfortunately, over a year ago. Um, oh, man. So I have all this wonderful equipment just collecting dust in my basement yeah. right now. It's going to need a, a deep clean before I use it again. Yeah, yeah. it's been, uh, well, let's see, my last couple of batches have not turned out very well, and uh, the last one actually turned out okay, but I overcarbonated it. It was a Saison, and um, I've had several bottles explode in my closet, mm. and uh, they're, they're quite a bit of gushers. It's I don't think it's an infection, but it's just, uh, I think I just didn't pay attention to the carbonation, and that was the end of that. Yeah, that, that'll do it. <laughs> either Either too much sugar, or you added too early. Yeah, I think it was just too much sugar, too much bottling sugar. All right, well, it's 5 o'clock, Bill, so I don't know about you, but I'm having a beverage. <laughs> well, enjoy. Yeah, it's uh, 1916 Shore Shiver. This is a uh, boardwalk, forgotten boardwalk in South Jersey. They make a really good American IPA, East Coast IPA. Nice. Hmm. So I guess... Um, Okay, so since you're busy and you're not brewing anymore, uh, what do you do with your free time? When are you spending your free time doing? Uh, let's see. Well, it's summertime, which means that my daughter is involved in about nine different activities. Um, now, I, I actually do spend a lot of time with her. She's involved in uh, summer plays, so I spend oh, nice. a lot of time taking her to from uh, rehearsals. Uh, she was also involved in a four-week STEM program. Uh, so she was, oh, nice. she was actually interning at uh, a PBS station local to us. Oh, how cool. Uh, doing a lot of graphic design work. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, but she needed a ride to and from. Hmm. Uh, she's not, of course. She's not quite have her license yet. Um, huh. But, uh, yeah, in my spare time, I, uh, I actually um, I do a lot of Taekwondo. So I've been... Yes. I've been studying that for about, about that. five, six years. Uh, got my black belt okay. last year. Um, yeah, I need to get back there. I've been traveling so much lately that I haven't really gotten back in the rhythm of attending on a regular basis. So oh, I wow. need to fix that. Hmm. 
So is there anything that you can do, like, you know, while they're traveling? Can you practice or can you go to a gym or something like that? I can go to a gym. Uh, it helps if they have a heavy bag so I can do some, you know, uh, oh, okay. sets or sparring sets by myself. Um, but, yeah, I'll, um, I'll usually do any kind of regular calisthenics, uh, even if it's just in, you know, in the hotel room. Um, or, uh, you know, hit the gym. And uh, if they have an open area, then I'll, I'll also work on some forms. So all of that exercise doesn't uh, work off all the foods that you're eating? No, sadly it doesn't. <laughs> I don't know what the magic ratio is, but I'm certainly not hitting it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little off on that myself. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I know um, Scriptorium dabbles in all sorts of media. I know that they are responsible for uh, learningdita.com, which is a great way to um, you know hone your skills on Dita if that's something you want to pick up. Um, but also I know that you've done some experience on medium.com. Can you, uh, talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, we're still really poking at medium and trying to figure hmm. out if we want to, um, you know, go ahead and, and start using it full stream or not, uh, for, uh, a lot of our blogging purposes. You know, we do have a blog on our website that we update, uh, weekly, right. but, um, you know, we're wondering if there's value in, uh, you know, we're trying to determine whether or not there's, there's actual value in duplicating information or if we should, uh, okay. you know, um, use it for a slightly different purpose and publish different content there. We're not really um, sure if we're going to do a deep dive into Medium right now. Hmm. It seems like a lot of people are kind of ex doing the same thing, experimenting, see what's useful. Um, I actually found out recently that there is a, WordPress plugin that'll print right to Medium, but I find in general that it's just um, it's hard to find stuff, and it's like the homepage isn't organized, even though it says it's your homepage. So I want to like Medium, but I'm I'm still guarded about it. I guess. Yeah, I find that you know the way it retrieves Medium articles is very much the same way that Facebook um, uh, promotes posts to the top of your feed. Uh, you know, it's, it's mm. based on things you've viewed before, uh, keywords that you've used in your own posts, um, and of course, you know, people you know uh, versus people you don't know. Um, okay. So I, I think it uses the same type of, uh, or, or at least a similar uh, way of serving up content. But I, I, mm. I too have found Medium to be a little, a little strange to try to find things on. Yeah, it seems like whenever I open it up, it comes up with uh, Serious Eats and Kenji, who I love. But, you know, it's like I want to see other stuff other than, than, than food, 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 food. So I've found it, uh, found it mixed. I guess that's a good analogy with Facebook. Um, how does translation, I guess let's go back to that. How does translation work with social media and stuff like Facebook? Ah, oh, that's an interesting one. Um, mm. And a lot of times it really doesn't. Uh, you, oh. I mean, you can have a strategy for, for pushing stuff out, but um, really, at the end of the day, uh, your translate uh, transcreation process is really what's going to drive a lot of that. Because hmm. because you're hitting a target audience, you know, you're, you're trying to, to, you know, when you're when you're posting on Facebook or social media, you're doing it for for a specific marketing purpose. Um, there's really a, no other real reason for a company to be posting to social media if they're you know learning there it's in their best interest to be selling um so they're using it as a, as a marketing driver and as, as with any marketing messaging it has to be tailored um, so okay. uh, i mean you, you hmm. can use it to to do some raw translation and i've seen that um in place but for the most part uh, you know the, the the marketing especially not on facebook so 
uh, you're looking at, uh, well, mainly on Twitter, I would say, uh, you want to get a more engaging campaign going. So um, a lot of times, you know, it'll be done um, individually, you know, per e either per language or per location. You know, there'll, there'll hmm. be a different type of message going out. Now, what percentage of your work is on the marketing side of things? Um, it's, it's it's actually pretty small. I mean, unless you count all oh, okay. our own, uh, marketing. Um, hmm. You know, our clients do um, try to, you know, wrap in marketing into their content strategy. And in some cases, it works quite well. In other, way, in other cases, you know, we're just focused on TechCon because either the marketing uh, group is completely separate from those who do the TechCon stuff or the budget only lies in, in the TechCon area, so they're only applying it to okay. TechCon. Um, you know, but there are there are cases when we're also working with marketing based um, groups. Hmm. Cool. So, what does um, what does a director of operations do exactly? <laughs> uh, so I do a little bit of everything. I do a lot of project management. Um, and uh, I work with the executive team on uh, sales and marketing and uh, okay. internal-based um, stuff. But it, basically, it's just keeping things moving forward uh, as best possible. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not the, uh, the the standalone money guy or, or anything like that. But um, you know, as far okay. as projects and such, um, you know, really keeping a, a finger on the pulse of project work. And, um, you know, again, this is all on, you know, we're a small company, so this is, right. you know, on top of working, you know, with clients. So, um, you know, so I do a lot of strategy work um, and a lot of implementation work as well. Oh, okay, cool. So do, are, do you have a hand in deciding what goes on the blog every week? Um, at least the stuff I'm writing. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Okay. Um, but, yeah, we, we take, um, you know, we, we have a, a very social um process for, for coming up with the blogs uh, we usually run ideas you know past each other uh, we have a we have a standing meeting every morning at 9 30 where we basically you know give everyone else a heads up as to what's going on in our respective projects uh, and then we'll also discuss you know topics for you know next few blog posts who's going to do them you know what our focus will be on um, drafts will go out we'll all you know have a nice review um, of those posts before they go out. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we take a, a, a more so, we really do a lot of social uh, based work. You know, we hmm. don't work in a vacuum. We don't sit down and, you know, just focus on, you know, I, I don't sit there and just focus on what I'm responsible for. Um, you know, I, I bring things up and other, other people do too. I mean, we all sit, you know, bounce ideas off each other uh, because that's where we do our best work, you know, is by getting others involved. Hmm. Right. True. All right. Um, all right, Bill. Well, I, I know you have uh, you have some stuff to do, so let's uh, let's wrap up. And thank you for sharing uh, your insight. And um, why don't you let us know about where we can find you if we're looking for you online? Sure. Um, best place you can probably reach me is on Twitter uh, at Bill Swallow. Um, I'm also on uh, Facebook and on uh, LinkedIn as well. And you can probably find me pretty easily just by doing a name search there don't have the custom URLs handy. Um, I know one is TechCom Dude and one is Bill Swallow, and I can't remember which one is which, to be honest with you. Um, also, uh, at Skype, uh, you can reach me oh, here nice. as well. Um, I am, uh, I believe it's Swallow-Scriptorium. Okay. And um, 
yeah. Otherwise, you know, you'll you'll probably see me poking around online, and you'll certainly you know have a good chance of running into me at uh, conferences. And I will be at um, LavaCon this uh, this coming uh, October. Oh, cool! I'm actually going to Content Marketing World in September, so I'm looking forward to a to a new experience. Nice. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see some people like Marsha Reefer Johnston, and uh, seems like there's a lot of techcom people who are going to be attending this, and it doesn't hurt that uh, Mark Hamill's going to be the keynote speaker. Oh, that's probably the big draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably one of them, I'm sure. Um, so thanks, Bill. Thanks again for uh, for your time and sharing your insight and letting us know what's going on in the world of Bill. Uh, uh, don't forget that you can subscribe to the Content Content Podcast on iTunes. If you're there, please write us a review. It is important for ranking. Uh, let us know whether uh, you like the show, whether you don't like the show, if there's something you want to see. Uh, if you have an uh, idea for a guest, you can always reach out as well. Uh, if you're on Android, you can go to edmarsh.com slash podcast and subscribe using your favorite podcasting client. Uh, I, my personal preference is Beyond Pod, but whatever makes you happy. Uh, you can also find the podcast on iTunes Radio and the Google Play Music Podcast Store. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ed Marsh and, of course, also at edmarsh.com. And uh, my slides from my recent presentation at TC Camp, which was a lot of fun, uh, on podcasting and social media is available on SlideShare. So we'll have the link up for that. Uh, Bill, thanks again. Uh, have a great day. Thanks. I appreciate you coming on. Great. Thanks, Ed.